With FIB, we know it's spread primarily by fighting, and we know from our big trap-neuter return programs that after neutering, those tomcats really become <laughs> quite lazy and docile, yeah, yeah. and they really don't fight anymore. Yeah. So even if they are carrying FIB, they're very, very unlikely to spread it to another cat. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. And Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and we are at the Burr Podcast. We are, and today is a very special day for me, mm -hmm. I have to say. Yes. Yeah, because It's we... going to be the day that I'm completely quiet. and in uh, Okay, now I have three reasons why it's special to me. So, uh, reason number one is Yola will have very little to say, because yes. he's a surgeon, mm -hmm. and so, yay! <laughs> uh, I'm going to be very interested to see how you work surgery into uh, feline uh, retroviruses. You better watch me. I know, yeah. you'll find a way. So that's reason number one. Uh -huh. um, reason number two is that we're doing the podcast because the AAFP 2020 retrovirus guidelines have just come out. And reason number three is that our guest is Dr. Julie Levy, who I really consider um, one of my heroes in feline Aww. medicine. Oh, thank Aww. you, Susan. Back at you. <laughs> so welcome, Julie. Yeah, Julie, can you introduce yourself a little bit for our audience, please? Uh, sure. It's a, uh, I'm very happy to be here uh, it's a wonderful audience and i love any time i can sit around and talk about cats for a while and not be interrupted by people who get tired of that so um, i am a professor of shelter medicine at the university of florida and i work primarily on cat issues so yeah. finding ways to help shelters save more cats and how to keep cats healthy. My background is in infectious disease research. My PhD was in FIV immunopathology. So this particular topic is very near and dear to my heart. And the good news is our new guidelines are giving veterinarians and shelter staff and cat owners a lot of new powerful tools to do best for their cats. Yeah, it's really, it's really amazing. Um, um, you and I, Julie, um, co-chaired these guidelines. And when did we start working on them? Do you remember the year? Uh, uh, it's, I'm not even going to say it's yeah. not like what month. It's like, what year? Yeah. It yeah. might have been 2016, do you think? Because for a while I had a file folder called 2016 guidelines. I know that we have been working on these for at least four years. And one of the challenges is we were trying to collect the latest information yeah. from across the globe. So yeah. we've got an international panel and research was just coming out so fast that we were constantly updating. <laughs> and for a while it seemed very complex mm -hmm. and we were having a hard time really wrapping our head around uh, a simple story yeah. to integrate all of this new information. And I'm really happy to say that the new guidelines do just that. We've been talking about them this week at the VMX conference and doing some webinars yeah. and having people coming up to us, thanking us for simplifying the yeah. message around the management of FELB and FIV. And that's really makes my heart warm. Yeah, it's really made us smile because I know both of us went through a phase there for a while where we thought, oh, we just made it worse. Like, now I don't understand it. And <laughs> how can anybody else understand it? But um, again, just as the research came out and a project that you're working on, Julie, that we'll talk a little bit more about, um, really started to generate some data, like suddenly, well, not suddenly, but it became a little clearer, right? Yeah, and timing is everything. And that's amazing because I'm a surgeon, so you can convince me that. 
<laughs> you can make yeah, it very you easy. Yeah, we will. We will. You know, if Yola understands it, okay, then we're. Oh my gosh, there. that's what we should do. So we should make Yola answer the poll, yes. and then we'll give him a presentation, and then we'll make yeah. Yola answer the poll afterwards. I think it'd be a perfect it's test. It's a pre-test subject. and a post-test. Yeah, I'm a little anxious right now. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, Yola's sweating. <laughs> yeah, but... you do know what they are, right? Mm. The viruses, virusy things. Yeah. 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 Kind of. <laughs> yeah, because I, I just got a message from someone that oh, hugged me and has influenza A. So, uh, <laughs> oh, no. you know, it's just like, okay, great. That's great knowledge to have right now. You know, I'll boost up my uh, resistance a little bit. Oh, right? hey, so, your immune system needs to be trained anyway. Yeah, that's it. So, But I fly so much that my immune system is right top of the <laughs> You hope so. That's it. But, Julie, great to have you here. Uh, I'm really excited, Mr. Murphy. Good. So, uh, so that the reason I'm excited is that uh, um, I was trained by Marian Horsenek. Yeah. And we all love Marian. Oh, and gosh. he really put the passion into virology at Utrecht. Yeah. And he was an amazing mentor, uh, amazing person to be around with, yeah. uh, of, uh, to be around, and, uh, and such a fantastic teacher. So I will never forget. Yeah. Virology. I mean, it oh. just baked into me as. Uh, you so know, I never I'm, put two and two together. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, I, I knew you got your degree at Utrecht, but I never put two and two together. I'm a jealous of you that, mm-hmm. yeah, you were there when he was there. And and then, uh, of course, his position was taken over by uh, Peter Roche, who was a big FIP uh, person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, virology in Utrecht has always been really, really, really strong. Big thing. And, uh, yeah. and so, so there is, I remember still the. Uh, we had a uh, so uh, a reader reader for virology, and it was like this thick. I'm showing now at least uh, five centimeters know, yeah. of a double page paper oh. that we had to read with all the viruses that are around and that sort oh. of thing. So, so you might be surprised. Okay, you know? exactly. We so. may be pleasantly surprised. Exactly. So. When you start these guidelines, uh, it's it's a labor of love because you put a lot of people in a room and they <laughs> need to try to reach consensus, which is not always easy. So how did you do that? Uh, so that's exactly true. And we do come from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. We intentionally put together a very diverse uh, panel because we didn't want to be an echo chamber. We mm-hmm. wanted to have some of that tension around the different experience that the folks in Europe and um, other parts of the world have compared to the the culture and viruses that we're seeing in North America so that these truly could represent a global view of retroviruses and helping cats. And not only is there differences in the viruses that are circulating in different areas and the testing that is available in different countries, but also just the culture around managing cats and an interesting um, uh, kind of cross uh, ocean difference is like whether cats should be kept indoors mm-hmm. primarily or allowed outside primarily and what's better for their health and welfare and then how is that impacted when they contract a retrovirus and what's the best management so it was very rewarding to have this disparate group of very passionate veterinarians um, have some fairly vigorous debates sure. at times and different interpretation of the emerging research. Yeah. And I think that's what brings the power of these guidelines forward is it does not represent a narrow slice of life as viewed through one lens. Mm. And can you give an example of one of those discussions just to give Oh, I'll give you an example. Remember, um, <laughs> I don't know if you're thinking of the same one I am, but I remember there was a point when we were talking about um, uh, shelters and like trap neuter return programs and we were trying to 
devised some recommendations around those. And we really seem to be talking at cross purposes for a while until um, I, I and I didn't know this was an issue until we until we explained to them what shelters are like here, you know, and how cats are housed and what TNR programs are like. And I can I just remember them going, oh, <laughs> It's exactly right. Yeah. We were having a discussion about whether it was necessary to test every cat yeah. in a shelter. And we were describing that in North America, most cats are housed individually in small cages. And our so we were comfortable saying that it wasn't urgent to test every cat in the shelter during the time it was in the shelter, that maybe some of that testing could be passed to the new veterinarian who was going to provide that cat with lifetime care after adoption. And our colleagues in Europe were really like, no, you must test the cats in the shelter. And they didn't understand until they saw a picture of the traditional housing that we have in North American shelters, which is a row of small cages. And and to their credit, they were somewhat offended that we would keep cats that way rather than put them in large runs where they could have space and maybe in small groups, which might actually be a more humane way to yeah. shelter cats. Yeah, I think they had no idea, right? And, and I don't think, I, I think neither was kind of new really what the other's world was. So it was really eye-opening, wasn't it? And then it was much easier to come to consensus <laughs> once we all understood each other's position. Yeah, yeah. Cats, cats are kept really differently in, in Europe. Um, yes. Did you have a cat when you were a kid? You're allergic, I know. I'm allergic to cats, so we never had cats. You never had cats? So. Yeah, but they're more likely to have outdoor access, mm -hmm. right? It, yeah. I they're think almost all outdoor. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very European indoor, thing. Indoor, outdoor. Yeah, so. and we seem to have a North American perspective that it's like bad to let cats outdoors on. Mm -hmm. It is. It's bad for the birds. Well, it... <laughs> It, it depends. Yes. You know, oh, do you remember um, once going to a, a forum with the cat people and the bird people? Do you remember that? Remember that was at the AVMA oh. forum in 2004. And oh, it you was, do remember? Oh, it was uh, maybe some permanent emotional scars. <laughs> but and, and we really, you know, that's a very hot topic right now because we are all animal lovers of all uh -huh. species. We're uh, dreadfully concerned about climate change and the impact on all the wildlife this is having and I think sometimes we are positioned that we care either about wildlife yeah. or about cats and the people I know care deeply about both and mm -hmm. are looking for common solutions and and trying to move the debate from picking between cats and birds to how can we best control cat populations, uh, move them out of areas where they're a particular concern for birds so that there's fewer free roaming cats in the environment, but also making sure that uh, we don't use a scorched earth approach where we're, we're just relying on culling as our only tool because that hasn't proven to be effective anymore. No, it's not effective and it shouldn't be an either or, right? right? It's, it's just, that's not a very humane approach. So, you know, one of the things that um, are in in our new guidelines is that we did kind of soften the language a little bit around um, outdoor access for for cats that have FELV or FIV and and you know it's not to the point where we're saying yeah they can all go outdoors but it was a recognition of what happens in real life and right and what happens in real life is some of these cats are very difficult to make them live indoors and so if you have a disease like that, is it better for you to be really stressed and live indoors or have some outdoor access? Mm. And uh, But we did talk about things like catios. And we did, and, and we can recognize that um, neutering cats and mm. providing good health care 
drastically reduces the chances that they're going to spread it to another cat outdoors. So with FIV, we know it's spread primarily by fighting. And we know from our big trap neuter return programs that after neutering, those tomcats really become <laughs> quite lazy and docile. Yeah, yeah. And they really don't fight anymore. Yeah. So even if they are carrying FIV, they're very, very unlikely to spread it to another cat. And then with FELV, the primary way that it has been spread is from infected mother cats to their kittens. Mm. So when they're spayed, even if they're put back out in the environment, they're not producing those infected kittens anymore. Yeah. So oh, that's big news, huh? Yeah, it is. You can't overlook that, you know, that the, those simple tools that we're doing anyway to control populations also control these diseases, right? So, um, you know, when you understand that picture, it's it's not so black and white, right? Yes, Every cat exactly. has to stay indoors. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So I, I think it was good that we softened the language around that a little bit. Um, the the other thing that we really addressed in the guidelines was sort of the the shift in what's happening in shelters, right? And I know like you're really attuned into that, obviously because you work with a lot of shelters, and and so particularly for testing for viruses like this, it's really changing in a lot of shelters, isn't it? There is quite a sea change going on in North America, at least now. And traditionally, shelters felt very compelled that they should screen every cat for FELV and FIV in the shelter, even if they were housed individually, so there was no risk of transmission in the shelter. And that was considered to be part of the basic healthcare package of a shelter cat, which would also include spaying and neutering vaccinations and parasite control. And then this um, kind of perfectly prepared cat would be adopted out and then hopefully connect with the veterinarian for lifelong comprehensive care. And one one piece we know we need to do better on is we need to do a better job of that handoff of care and have better communication between animal shelters and veterinarians so that we don't have cats falling through the cracks because we do know that cats don't receive as much veterinary care as dogs Mm -hmm. do. So we have more work to do there. But what we also observed is that the rate of of infection is low, around 3% in shelters. And so most of that testing investment was going to identifying cats that did not have infection. And in large shelters, that could end up being $100,000 or more of testing costs. And when we're critically underfunded and understaffed, we do have to take a very hard look at how we are investing resources to help cats the most. And in some cases, shelters were realizing they could help cats more by hiring additional staff, uh, upscaling their spay-neuter programs, maybe hiring a behaviorist to work on enrichment, or remodeling the shelter for more humane housing. And so what we are starting to see as a trend, and I don't believe it's going to go away, is for shelters to be more selective with the cats that they are testing and then having good communication with the pet adopter and the new veterinarian and recommending that that be testing that testing be done at the new veterinarian and so if i can interrupt how how do you see that then so because i'm a client and mm-hmm. i'm coming to the shelter i want to pick up my cat but i also want to be sure that that cat is healthy mm-hmm. um and so now i have kind of the risk to take a cat that might have one of the viruses mm-hmm. with him. I'm going to my vet and then I find out that that cat has that virus. So um, what do I do then? 
So that that is the dilemma that has caused a lot of fear and supported the traditional approach that we should just identify all of these cats before there's a potential adopter in the room. And and that's there's legitimate concern about that. But again, the shelters are really trying to look at how they can produce the greatest good. Remember also that only about a quarter of people get their new cats from shelters. It is actually more common to find a cat or the cat out in the environment, you. the cat knocks on the door, you get it from a friend or the uh, co-worker has kittens. Um, and so the shelters are only one uh, smallish piece of where cats are getting shelters. So this, this whole education need that people who are acquiring new pets need to quickly get them to their veterinarian and have them screened for these health issues before they introduce them to the cats they already have at home is not just for shelters. It is one communication that sure. we need to have right. broadly. But then it also means we, we need to, at the time of adoption, really have clear conversations with owners to say that there, there is a low risk, but it is a risk if this happens. We're here to support you, whether you keep the kitty or you bring the kitty back to us. We are starting to develop adoption programs specifically for these infected cats because we know they can make good pets if we support the owners and give them good education. And we also know that adopting a new pet is a really exciting time. So probably 95% of what we tell them at that moment (laughs) is going right over their head and they're not listening. So I think we need to improve our... Um, the written handouts that we give, simplify them, make sure the important stuff is really clear. I think we need to improve making an appointment at the time of adoption with the new veterinarian so that doesn't fall through the cracks and maybe doing some follow-up. Like, wouldn't it be great to have some automated emails two days later, you know, hey, how's it going with Fluffy? Don't forget, this is, you know, the next step so that that we can just make sure that all that communication really sinks in. It's possible to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I told you about this before, Julie, the Cat Healthy Group in Canada, Yola knows the group, and we had done a pilot project a couple of years ago where we were trying to uh, improve that bridge, right, from the from the shelter to um, to the veterinarian. And it was a fairly simple project where when people were adopting a cat from the shelter, the participating shelters um, asked the cat owner, do you, do you already have a veterinarian? And something like 85% of them said, yeah, um, either, you know, I have a pet right now, we're going to the vet, or maybe I, this I'm just getting a pet, but in the past I used this vet. So 85% could name a vet. And then those shelters would um, uh, uh, email a, uh, a copy of the cat's um, record or fax it or whatever, you know, and we use kind of a standard form for that. And so the vet found out that the owner had adopted the cat before they even came into the clinic, mm. right? It, it's not that hard. No. And w- what was interesting about that was most of the vets um, took advantage of that and they had a staff person say, uh, hello, Mrs. Smith. Uh, we see you've adopted a new cat. Isn't that great? And we see, you know, by next week, Fluffy is due to have the next vaccination or whatever it is, right? Let's go ahead and book that appointment. Mm. And there was a small number of veterinarians um, who were offended <laughs> somehow. Yes. Not quite sure why. There's always some, right? Who were like, why are you sending me this? That's not my client. That person isn't in my records. And they just didn't see the the beauty, you know, of a brand new client. Yeah, we've just like tossed one into your lap for free. Um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, the, the approaches that people make. But there's it's possible to do this. It really is. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and I also want to, talk a little bit about the fact that 
as I've talked to some veterinarians about this change, I do get feedback from veterinarians who say, oh, that's bad. Shelters are supposed to do that. You know, oh, that bad shelter. Have you mm. not gotten some of that feedback too from like from local vets? We do, mm. and we we also have um, some shelter medicine Facebook groups uh, for veterinarians. I'm on some of the Facebook groups for private practitioners as well. And so this is a, a topic mm. that is causing some long some communication <laughs> threats um, as people really try to digest this. What is this going to mean for them? What is going to mean for their clients? And I I think having those. The education before the program launches makes or breaks the transition. So the shelter veterinarians really need to get out to the local VMA and have those conversations, make sure everybody's on the same page. And I think help um, provide the tools that the veterinarians are going to need if there is a positive result. And so that um, they don't have a crying client in their exam room and and nothing to offer them. Mm -hmm. So we can provide scripts and tools and like what's next and what you can do and we're really excited. A lot of optimism about the outcomes of these cats. Yeah. So we there's you know a period of, of doom and gloom about seeing a blue dot on a test, <laughs> and we now have been following these cats out for years, and we're starting to be able to prognosticate with the testing results yeah. that we have. So I think that we can do a better job supporting the private practitioner in retaining these clients, and a lot of these folks will keep their cats and come and have regular veterinary visits for them. And can you talk a little bit about those results? So if I'm a cat owner with a feeling and leukemia positive cat, what do I, what should I expect? So a lot of it depends on, um, is this a surprise? Like you weren't expecting to get a feline leukemia positive cat and we need to start way at the beginning about what is this, what does it mean? And definitely the conversations will be very different about FELV than it's going to be about FIV because FIV most cats live with and never causes a problem. We now know that with FIV that you can house those cats with uninfected cats very safely and as long as they don't fight, they don't spread it within a household. Um, it is different with FELV where there's a, a group of those cats that will have shorter lives and we still consider it to be more infectious. So we would not recommend housing an FELV infected cat with other cats in uh, that are uninfected in a household. So they can still be adopted out as single cat mm -hmm. houses to single cat houses or to folks who have another positive cat who want to get it a friend. And so what we've we've just um, has recently become available is the ability to assign some prognostic information to the results of testing. And just this week, we've really distilled a new recommendation for screening for the retroviruses and then following up with confirmatory tests. And this is based on a long-term study that we're doing that I can't wait to talk a little bit about too. Yeah. But in a nutshell, our recommendation is going to be to use a combo test to screen in the um, in the practice or in the shelter using whole blood for FELV and FIV. And for a low-risk cat, we might call that enough testing and that we're going to call it one and done. Mm -hmm. If the cat is negative, it probably is uninfected. Mm -hmm. If the cat is positive for one of those viruses, we can manage them as an infected cat and just move forward from there. Or if it's appropriate to learn more about whether that might be a false positive or a true positive, we can move to the second tier of testing, which would be to send a sample to the lab. And in the lab, and for either virus, we would confirm with a PCR test. And if that PCR test is also positive, that confirms the infection. 
I think what's most confusing is if that PCR test is negative, that becomes a discordant result. So it's different than the screening test, and we don't know which one is correct. So it is very hard to ever erase that first positive test. And, and it's like to you say can't it. unsee it. You cannot unsee <laughs> that first test. Once you saw test. the blue dot, you cannot unsee right. it. Now with FELV, we have a new advance yeah. that has just become available. It's, it's really one of the most important advances in the past decade or more of feline medicine, yeah, I think. I think. Is this is a, it's that big. <laughs> it, is, it is. That It's a panel. They submit whole blood uh, to the lab. And they will run a plate test, which is a very sensitive uh, test for FELV antigen. And then they will run a quantitative PCR test. Mm-hmm. This is looking for the DNA of the virus, the provirus. And if it's present at a high level, that is very consistent with a progressive infection. And we can say those cats are more likely to have a short lifespan, develop FELV-associated disease, and to be infectious to other cats. If the cat has a, it's positive for PCR, but at a low level, that is consistent with a regressive infection, those cats may live a normal life, even though they are infected with FELV. Mm -hmm. They're less likely to develop disease associated with this virus, and they really don't shed very much virus, so they might not be infectious to other cats. So this is the first time we've been able to give cat owners a prognostic information that they can use both to you know, decide about how to keep the cat, but also maybe how intensive the veterinary follow-up needs yeah. to be for that individual cat. Yeah, and uh, you know, you you and I would have graduated from school at a time when we were always told, right, that if a cat's FELV positive, probably you too, right? Mm-hmm. If it's FELV positive, like you know, you, um, you you might have two years. Yeah, yeah, but. For a very long time, we really didn't have a good way to tell if a cat had sort of the good FELV or the bad form of FELV. And so that's what's so exciting is that now with most cats, we can, you know, put them into the right bucket, if you will. And it, and it makes a big difference to what, what we think is going to happen to those guys. It really yeah. does. And, uh, you know, if I can diverge a little bit into an exciting study that we've been yeah. working on for over three years. Yeah. We were very interested in trying to untangle the um, very many different tests that were available for FELV. There's IFAs and point of care tests, and laboratory tests, virus culture, and, and all of these things. And, and you can get different results. And on one day, you'd get a set of results. And another day, you get another set of results. And so we said, all right, we're just going to answer this question once and for all. We're going to test a whole bunch of naturally infected cats monthly for six months and see what the pattern is. So we worked with a shelter in Austin, it's called Austin Pets Alive, and they are well known for having a very large scale adoption program for FELV infected cats. They adopt out hundreds of cats a year. People from all over the country send their cats there for adoptions, very successful. And so they have access to a lot of these positive cats. So we collected a, a sample set of 130 naturally infected cats. They were adopted out, but their owners agreed to bring them back every month for testing. So we tested them with a broad panel of tests. I think everything. Didn't you do everything? We did everything. And not only every test, but we also (laughs) tested whole blood, plasma, (laughs) and serum so we could answer the question about what the best sample was. I've never seen so many tests. I'm sure you have over 100,000 results that we tried to digest. So that contributed to the phase where we just became more confused. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot of 
podcast. <laughs> That's a big Excel sheet, right? <laughs> it was. Um, but then as the, the pattern kind of started to distill itself, we realized that this point of care test on whole blood combined with this laboratory plate test and a quantitative PCR test, just those three results could tell us everything we needed to know about these cats. And so we are now still following uh, most of these cats. Some of them we followed for three years even. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping to follow them for a lifetime to really be able to answer for the first time, what is the lifetime survival of cats with these different kinds of test results and these categories of regressive, abortive, and progressive. So we're deep into that study, but the results that we generated in the first part are what informed these new recommendations that we're sharing today. Yeah, and that's amazing. That's amazing. We are at the end no, of our time. No, we have I, more to already, say. Yeah, I know, I know, no, but we, we have. We can't we'll come, be. We'll come back, but because for the next podcast that we're going to do, you are you need to still give us the answer. What is best, the serum, the blood, or yeah. the oh, okay. plasma? Yeah. So we'll okay. keep that for next okay. week. And uh, this was amazing I already. I'm know. very. I'm sitting the edge of my chair. Like um, literally, but probably because there's a big cushion behind you. I think really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, no, very very cool. It's uh, it's super interesting, especially when you, a hundred thousand. Yeah. Can you data points. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's impressive. So. Thank you so much. Yep. This has been great. We'll be back in a week. And in mm-hmm. the meantime, make sure you check our website, which yes. is? Perpodcast.net. Yeah, you always remember. Yes. I know. That's I do. That's good. Not yeah. everybody else does. But, uh, yeah. So yes. all of our episodes are listed there. Mm-hmm. So you can see who's been on. And uh, you can listen right on the website if you want. Uh, but you can also download the podcast in any podcast app or Spotify, mm-hmm. whatever you use. And, uh, you know, give us a review. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and um, we recently uh, taped a podcast where we learned how to respond to negative reviews. Yes, we did. So, <laughs> so. so and as a matter of fact, the best way to deal with reviews is don't read them. So, <laughs> so that's very easy. There you go. So There's a take-home that, message. So but thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate at the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GBETSX. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at per podcast. 